Well, I think the, the biggest benefit to humanity from all of this is they will be buying more meat online. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Live Your Mission Show, brought to you by Mission Meets, where our guests share their most actionable advice so that you can live a more mission-centered life. I'm your host, Peter Alwood, and today we are joined by one of my favorite writers, Derek Sivers. But before we get to that, here's what's going on over at Mission Meets headquarters. All right, guys, I just want to talk to you real quick about something we rolled out that has had some really, really positive response, more than I even thought, is we put together some $99 bundles. And why is that exciting? I think people are tired of clicking around to figure out what was in stock and what flavors they should try. And so we put together a bunch of different bundles. Uh, One's called the Mix of Sticks. Um, It has some cracked pepper pork, original beef, jalapeno beef, original turkey, jalapeno turkey. We also have the uh, I Can't Stay out of my snack supply bundle, specifically for the coronavirus. Um, and so we've got some uh, flavors there: uh, the original snacks bundle, spicy snacks bundle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And people just seem to be loving those um, because you get to try um, some vetted flavors, um, the ones that we feel like are most likely and most purchased together. You don't have to hunt around. You don't have to add a bunch of different things to cart. You don't have to wonder if it's in stock. You can just one click and buy that baby. So um, check those out. Go to missionmeets.co. Click on the bundles in the top snacks navigation bar and uh, you'll find all those different ones there. And if you're feeling really crazy, we got the mother load bundle uh, and it's got just a stupid amount of snacks in it. So check that out. All right. Now back to the show. All right, so now on for our guest, uh, Derek Sivers. Um, this guy is self-proclaimed pop philosophy writer, and rightly so. His incredible work, and then he's recently launched a podcast where he reads these posts, and he's just got a great voice to go along with, just some beautiful writing. And I was telling him, I was excited to have him on because he can break down these seemingly like difficult thought processes, uh, difficult decisions in life, things that you're struggling with and just break them down and you'll read it and you'll say, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that's not that difficult or that's not hard to, f- to flush out. Um, like one of the blog posts that I mentioned in the, in the show is about how you don't need to make your art your business and your business your art. They can be two separate things and how that's totally acceptable. And those are the things that like a lot of people, including myself, who struggle with. You're like, oh, I should be following my passion. I should be not working in this profession. I should be following my dreams and all this stuff. And so he, he can break it down and you can, you can feel okay in having your work fund your art and your art not necessarily funding um, your lifestyle. And so just, that's just an example. And so just some really quick things that we touch on. There's so much here. And I had like 50 bullet points that I wrote out and I'm like, I can't, I'm going to, I can't touch on these things in the intro. So a couple of things um, it, in the past, he was the founder of CD baby, uh, sold that company, put a lot of that into a trust for musicians, which is incredible. That's way back in 2008. But on the show, we discuss um, how his mission has changed being incorrectly categorized as an entrepreneur um, about uh, the thought process of admitting when your mission has changed instead of following an expired path. And I love that he used the word expired and how that can hold you back. And we talk, we talk all through that. Asking yourself who your heroes are and how that can steer what you should be doing next. Um, the wisdom of terrible failures and how the failures can be a good thing. We can really look at them in, in a positive light. How money affects the def- definition of what you do. When somebody asks you what you do, how money can affect that. And he talks all through that. And then asking the question, what you hate not doing. 
instead of what do you love? And he, he, I, I just love the way he positions things where it's like, if everything was stripped away, what would you hate not doing? And diving into that and figuring out what it is that you love about those, those um, different um, exercises and maybe how that can inform who you want to be and what you want to do and um, what you want to strive for next. And then during the Reaper round, which we couldn't ship him any Reaper because he's in Oxford, England, and that would be illegal. Um, so um, during the Reaper round, he didn't get to eat him, right? That's what I'm trying to say. He, during the Reaper round, he mentions his favorite quote, um, his big, biggest business blunder, and how you don't know what you want until you try it. And we'll talk through what that means. All right. Now, please enjoy my conversation with the incredible pop philosophy writer, Derek Sivers. Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks, Peter. Good hey, to see man. you again. It's really great to talk to you again. It's been about four and a half years we were just talking about. Last time we chatted um, was on yeah. Slow Hustle Podcast. And we'll just dive right in, man. So the first question, when someone asks you what you do, what do you say? And is that your current mission or is it something different? <laughs> you know how to dive right in. All right. Uh, well, for 15 years, I was a musician. And so my mission was to be a great songwriter and performer. Then for 10 years after that, I made CD Baby. So my mission was to help musicians by building a great distribution system for them. But then I sold CD Baby. So now I guess I'm a writer of pop philosophy. And my mission is to see different perspectives on life. Um, never thinking that one is correct and the others are wrong, but instead trying to find different ways to look at this, you know, multifaceted life, mm -hmm. find another way of looking at it. Um, and then, of course, I have to write about it in an interesting and memorable way. Yeah. And why are you the right person for this? Like, why are you the right person for the job? Because <laughs> uh, I'm retired. Because <laughs> uh, I don't work for money anymore. Uh, I haven't earned any money since 2008. Uh, wow. Everything I do, I just do for intrinsic reasons because I want to. Actually, I pretty much do everything for a at a loss. You know what I mean? I've been mm -hmm. losing money since 2008. That should be like my proud slogan. <laughs> um, so I just feel that it's the right time for me to do something like this. I feel that most people are too busy to be thinking almost worthless thoughts like, you know, what's another way to look at the question of how to live? Most people are just, you know, they got to get on with their lives. They got stuff to do. They don't have yeah. time to sit around and ponder that. But I do. Yeah. So I, I got a couple, I guess, follow-ups on that. One is, how are you able to do that? you, um, you know, you're, you say you're retired and, um, like you can physically, you know, financially afford to do that, but mentally, how do you get over the hangup of not having to produce in that sort of way? Um, because I think it's not like a, it's not just a luxury that you've got because you are financially okay. But I think that there are plenty of founders that have exited for hundreds of millions of dollars and almost immediately they jump into another venture that has to produce, that has to make money. And they just, they haven't allowed themselves to think the way that you're thinking. So w like, what is it about you or what has changed in your mind, the thought process that allow you to think that way? Uh, I almost did that. I almost did that thing you're saying. 
when I sold CD Baby, I almost like moved to Silicon Valley and thought that I should be an angel investor now and do yeah. that thing that people do. Right. And I probably would have made a lot of money if I did that because I would have moved there in 2009 when things were at their, uh, we call that the trough. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would have been a very profitable 12 years. But as soon as I just took one little step into that world, I just went, eh, mm-hmm. I don't like this. Like the reason I did CD Baby was to help musicians. Like I was a musician helping other musicians. And then I feel like I got incorrectly categorized as an entrepreneur. Mm. When, like, really that wasn't... When I meet other entrepreneurs, I feel like we don't have much in common. When I meet other musicians, I'm like, oh, yeah, now we can talk. <laughs> like, I have more in common with musicians and authors and artists. When I talk to other entrepreneurs, unless they're also on their own mission, speaking of, mm-hmm. um, I feel like we don't have much in common. It's weird when people start talking to me about investors and doing our second round series a but i actually have no idea what they're saying i never did learn what that stuff means yeah and i don't want to i hate that world of you know maximizing what do you call that maximizing shareholder yeah return <laughs> return yeah no so um yeah so i took one step into that world and then ran the other way and it just made me question what do i really want also you know when it comes to money i think you know, when we see those people who have a car or a house that's just overflowing with junk, we call them hoarders. Mm-hmm. And we know that that's like a mental disorder. But yet if somebody has a hundred million dollars and they feel that they need a hundred million more, we go, hey, right on. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think it's, it feels to me like it's a disease. Like, why would you ever need more? What are you going to mm-hmm. do with that money? You can't spend it. So, I mean, yeah, to each his own. I mean... I, I figure that everybody's got a comfortable set point where they see themselves, where it aligns with their self-image. And, you know, a, uh, there's somebody out there who is a billionaire and feels like it's not enough. It doesn't match their set point mm. uh, to match their self-image. To me, I hit a few million dollars and I'm like, yeah, that's enough. <laughs> yeah. I'm never going to spend that. So I would be a fool to try to earn more. Do you think that you have this like this certain perspective and mindset because you've kept your mission at the forefront and that is what has allowed you to say, no, I don't need to go that direction. I don't need to move to Silicon Valley. I don't need to be an investor. That's not, that has nothing to do with my mission in life. Is that, is that what it is? Yeah. Well, part of the reason I answered your first question the way I did in these three parts, like, well, I was a musician, then I was the CD baby guy. Now I am a pop philosophy writer mm. is this idea that it's, it's ever changing that we have to admit when our mission has changed. It can be tough to realize. Sometimes it's very slow and creeps up on you and you just notice it more as a lack of enthusiasm Hmm. for a while. And then you have to realize like, hmm, you know what? I think that I'm following an expired path. You know, so, um, so yeah, that's what I mean where I said like, as soon as I sold CD Baby, I uh, originally started doing that typical plan of moving to Silicon Valley and then just right away went, no, hold on. That's like, this is kind of my old path. Something's expired. Um, so yeah, I had to, I had to see what my new mission was. And even that, it took me a while. Um, you know, the answer that I just said, where I, you asked me to define it and I said, I'm a writer of pop philosophy. That's actually, that only occurred to me a few months ago. Well, maybe it's oh, wow. been a year now up until a year ago, if you would have asked me, 
I would have said I'm a programmer and entrepreneur because hmm. I was still um, saying my expired identity. I didn't know it expired, but I just always felt like, well, I'm, I'm still saying this. This is what I do. This is what I am. You know, it's like if somebody says, what's your name? You just say, Peter, you don't rethink it every time. You know, so I had just said, you know, if somebody said, what do you do? I said, programmer and entrepreneur. And it took me a few years to realize that um, that's not what I'm really doing anymore. What did it feel like when you realized that that wasn't who you were anymore? Um, oh, liberating. Hmm. Um, it came, the, the question that changed my mind is when I asked myself, who are my heroes? Hmm. And when I wrote down my heroes in my journal, they were, I looked back at the list and they were all my favorite authors. Huh. It's like my favorite authors are my heroes. There's not a single entrepreneur or programmer on this list. Um, mm. Although programming is still like my top hobby. I actually spend as much time programming as I do writing, but it's, it's just a hobby. It's not a profession. I'm not trying to be great. I just mm -hmm. enjoy it. So um, yeah, it was liberating because I went, oh yeah, this is what I really, this is what I really love. This is what I really am. I love ideas and communicating and writing and thoughts and learning and creating. And yeah, yeah I like that more than business. Yeah. Yeah. And you're excellent at it, by the way. I, so I, I asked the question because I think that, and this is me personally, but I think it's true for a lot of people is that you identify with a certain profession and you're really good at it. Like CD baby, you know, musician, whatever, fill in the blank. You're really good at it. And it feels like forever. It feels like this is right. what you're supposed to be doing. Right. And when it comes to an end, you feel like a failure. It feels like, oh, I was supposed to be good at this forever and I'm not anymore. And yes. now what do I do? Did I just fail? But it's just so weird because jobs come to an end and businesses come to an end and you, you, know, you lose your work and then you find a new job and it's a little bit painful, but it's not an identity crisis. But for some reason, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, a writer, a musician, if that comes to an end, as you say, it expires, it feels like you failed. When instead, I always think of Richard Branson said something a long time ago that I found really fascinating. He said, he says it was good while it lasted, which is completely different. Yeah, nice. Right? It's like, it was I, great. And now I don't do that anymore. I'm going to make even one more comparison for you. Okay. I was married for six and a half years and it was great. And then one day, the two of us, like we went out to a movie on a Saturday. And then after the movie, we just kind of looked at each other. We got a lemonade and we just kind of said, I, I actually don't remember who said it first, but one of us said, do you want to break up? Wow. And the other one said, yeah, do you? We both went, yeah, let's break <laughs> up. Yeah, cool. You're not upset? No. Are you? No. Cool. Wow. All right. We just like walked home together. You know, we we're still living together, whatever. And mm -hmm. we just like walked home together like, wow, we just broke up. It's exciting. We like, we're like walking home arm in arm. Like, wow, we just broke up. Like, that was a good marriage. That was, it was great <laughs> while it lasted. Because it was honestly, we never even fought. It was like the perfect relationship for six mm -hmm. and a half years. And then we were just going other directions in life. And uh, it had just this beautiful ending, like this most amicable. Like I actually left that night. Um, I was just so excited to move on with my life that while she was asleep that night, I packed the car and I left and I haven't seen her since. And it was just like no hard feelings. It was like, that was the perfect ending. Wow. Um, we actually, in, in our six and a half years together, we fought once about four years into the relationship. We had one fight ever about whose turn it was to clean the bathroom. And that was our only fight in six. It was a great relationship. And so point is, I'm saying all this because 
was that a failed marriage? No, mm. it was a great marriage. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that you said expired because um, like there, the, things have an end date. Um, and I think that our, the danger is that we feel like our, who we are is tied to what we're pr- presently doing. And when right. that comes to an end, it feels like you have come to an end um, versus yeah. like that was a chapter and then that was a great chapter and now there's a new chapter and that's okay, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, chapters coming to an end doesn't mean the book is bad. It means there's something else to say. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so did you have any idea that you'd end up being where you're at now? It's pop philosopher, right? Writer. Of- oh, yeah. oh yeah. It was really deliberate. Um, see, when I sold CD Baby, probably because of what we're just talking about, I got a little lost. Mm. I couldn't see any future because I really did think I was going to do CD Baby until I died. Like, Actually, you could hear me, uh, NPR did a story on me back in, I think, 2004. And in that interview, I think like the closing question is, uh, my answer is, oh yeah, I'm just going to be doing this until I die. Even someday in the distant future when nobody buys CDs anymore, it'll just be me here alone in the warehouse shipping one CD a day to that freak who wants one. And I meant it at the time. I fully meant it. That wasn't some kind of posturing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, then like weird life circumstances and I sold the company and to me, selling the company felt like a bit of a failure, partially mm. because of what we're talking about. Um, partially because yeah, I just kind of messed things up at the end and that's why I had to sell. Um, but yeah, so I, afterwards I was a little lost. I couldn't see any future. I was just kind of um, drifting. I was reading interesting books. I was learning a lot. And at the time, this is back in 2008 and nine, I was watching TED Talks a lot. I used to be into TED Talks. And then while sitting on a plane on the way to a friend's wedding, all of a sudden I had this like flash of inspiration. I was like, I know what I want to do. I want to be one of these like writer, speaker, thinker kind of guys. I want people to want to hear my thoughts and read my articles. And I want Ted to invite me to speak on stage. And I was like, this is my mission. I'm going to make this happen. And I just dove into it with an intensity. I like practiced. I did very deliberate practice of my writing every single day, Hmm. hours a day, um, found out how I could get into TED. Um, and yeah, within a year I had done it. Um, so yeah, it was very deliberate. That's incredible. That's incredible. So the listener, why why should they um, care about what we're talking about? What do you think the <laughs> implications are as far as like this sort of mindset and thinking about expiration date, et cetera? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> applies it to their own life, right? I mean, um, yeah. I think it's kind of funny. It's amusing that people only want to listen to somebody who's had some success. Mm. And I found out, I mean, that's kind of why I got invited to speak at TED is because the you know, opening line of my bio was just like, you know, he built and sold this company. And they're like, oh, okay. He's, he's a legitimate person with something to say. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous yes. um, that people would listen to me because uh, of something I've done in the past. I really like it. That's what, one of the things I love about books is detaching the author from the message. Like there are some books where they actually like put a picture of the author on the cover. Mm-hmm. And when they do that, I literally rip the cover off the book because I'm like, this isn't about you, dude. This is about me. I'm reading this book for me. Like, I care about what you're writing. I don't care who you are. Because I do believe that you should be able to get some amazing wisdom 
from some terrible failures. Mm -hmm. People that are terrible failures probably have some great wisdom to share, but most Mm -hmm. people don't listen to it because we just want to listen to successful people spout platitudes that are uh, meaningless. So I always just assume that people shouldn't care what I have to say about anything unless the content of what I'm saying is useful for them. Yeah. Yeah. My, my friend and mentor always says that early failure is much more powerful than an early success. Um, because when you mm-hmm. fail, a lot of the times, you know, like these are the things that went wrong. Um, this is the mindset that I was in that didn't work for me. Yes. Right. Yeah. It, it's so useful to share your failures. People don't do that because they, I don't know why they want to get, they want to, you know, they have an ego that's fragile and they want to look good or they want to get hired for consulting gigs or something. So they don't want to admit that they've had failures. But yeah, right. I think admitting your failures and sharing the lessons learned from your mistakes is way more powerful than just mm-hmm. talking about what you did right. Yeah. Because a lot of times what w- things went right and you don't even know why. It could have been right. luck, some timing. You had no control over either one of those things. Yeah. Um, and so it's hard to measure them. A, a friend of mine, we were speaking the other day and he was talking about something not working out. And I said, listen, Google's had plenty of products that they've killed off. They just couldn't work. And right. I'm pretty sure we don't have anywhere near the resources that Google has. And if they had things that didn't work, do you think that you shouldn't have things that wouldn't work out? Nice. Is it possible that things wouldn't work for you if it couldn't work for them? Um, so it's very interesting that we don't want to fail and we don't want to share those things. So, um, of all the things that you had to get better at in your journey, what was the hardest? Hardest. I really don't think anything was hard. Um, (laughs) and sorry, it makes it sound like I'm doing that thing, like not talking about my failures, but no, um, (laughs) all right, I've got a metaphor for you. Um, At the ripe old age of 44, I lifted weights for my first time. I just was living in New Zealand next to a local weightlifting gym. And I had, I kept hearing that uh, it wasn't just for vanity, but especially as you age, it's just really good for your skeleton and keeping your bones strong. And I was like, all right. So I went to the local weightlifting gym. I was like, talked to the owner who was an expert and said, can you show me what I'm supposed to be doing here? So he told me something really surprising and interesting. Which was, I told him that I'm a little scared of this because a few times in the past, like if I was staying at a hotel, I would go use the gym in the hotel and I would lift too much or do too much because I had, hadn't been to a gym in months. And then for the next three days, I'd be like, ow, ah, my legs, everything hurts. <laughs> you know, I'd get so sore for days. So I, I told him that I'm scared of weightlifting because of that soreness. Like that's, mm. it's miserable. And he said, oh, man, he said, no, professional weightlifters. He said, look, even those guys that you see that are like giant and massive, either visually massive or the guys that are more what they call power lifters, where it's not about it's not bodybuilding. It's just like learning how to lift as much as you can. Mm -hmm. He said, most of those people have never been sore a day in their life. Hmm. I was like, how is that true? I said, first, I had, are you kidding? No, serious. How is that true? Um, he said, because they only add incrementally two to five pounds per workout. They, huh. You'd only do a workout every day or two. And every time you lift, you never add more than two to five pounds over what you did last time. It's always incremental. And he said, you can go all the way up from being able to 
you know, squat 70 pounds to squat 400 pounds. And if you did that in increments of five pounds, you will never be sore. And sure enough, he's right. Uh, so I've been doing it ever since. And yeah, I've never, ever been sore from weightlifting as I've doubled all my weights. So um, I think that's the metaphor of like, in all the stuff I did in the past, even with my business, and even I had like a few big giant mistakes, nothing was hard. It was all just fun. I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And incremental, like just one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Never, never felt moving. like there was huge inflection points. You were just like, you know, making progress. Slow and yeah. slow. You break everything into tiny little tasks that are interesting. If you do come up on something that seems like really hard, well, then you just stop and you break it down into smaller projects. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, nothing ever felt hard. That's huge. I think it's excellent advice because um, I think starting out, whether you're a new founder or you know um, been in it forever, you feel like you want to do all the things right away. Right. It feels yes. daunting and it feels yeah. impossible. And then you try to do them all at the same time and you get incredibly sore, very painfully <laughs> sore. Right. <laughs> Thank you for, for continuing the metaphor. That's a great one. I had, you know, when I'm actually, I, I, I try not to hurt people's feelings, but I laugh a little bit when somebody has started a new business. They've been at it for a few months and they say, it's not going well. It's not taking off like I wanted it to. Yeah. I'm like, it's been a few months like cd baby didn't really start going well until it was four years into it yeah like the first year was just me doing it in my spare time the second year was me and one guy doing it full time it, and then like the third year i had like two employees and it was still just like eh, it was okay it wasn't until the fourth year that it really started doing well and then it took off um yeah yeah it takes time it takes so much time and it's like the 10 year overnight success, right? It's like, it just takes a while. Um, and then even bringing it back to the very beginning, it's like, in, if your mission stays pure, then you can have clarity on the decision-making and the, you know, how you're taking that one step in front of the other in the direction that you're going, because you don't become impatient. You don't get driven by the money. Um, although money's important, it'll keep your business afloat, but it's more so like sticking to the mission and just, just one foot in front of the other, not getting impatient. Um, yeah, and then that, that way you don't get the soreness and, you know, um, get off track and, and find yourself way expired. So, um, and this You're is using those, all of our past references here. I like we're putting them all in one sentence. You're Derek. an expert. <laughs> so, um, knowing what you know now, how would you have done this differently? And this could be life. Could this could be the writing, however you want to, pick. um, Actually, probably the thing that I said maybe 20 minutes ago about where I kept calling myself an entrepreneur and programmer for eight years, mm -hmm. even though really in my heart, I was actually an author, but I wasn't admitting it. If, I guess the only thing I, if I would have done it sooner, uh, yeah, I, w I would have changed that. I, I wish that I would have realized that earlier because I think I spent 10 years kind of not writing or really I, I would spend hours a day writing privately mm. so in my journal in my diary or just even just to friends or whatever hours a day writing but because i didn't think of myself as an author i never shared that stuff huh. so it really wasn't until a year or two ago I, I realized that so yeah i wish i would have realized earlier so now i'm taking it more seriously and i'm finishing my third book and starting to get them all selling and i plan to keep making lots of books because now i'm taking it seriously 
Yeah. Do you think that if you were trying to sell this this product or trying to sell your writing that it would have changed the way that you would have looked at it? Like if you had yeah. that financial motivation, it would have changed the way that you oh, had proceeded? Um, oh, God, yeah. Okay, so sorry. I, I want to be clear. I, I'm, when I say taking it seriously, I don't... I'm not actually talking about the money at all. Okay. Um, so even when I say I've got three books coming and all that... That's just kind of like, it just means I'm taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. The way that I used to take my music seriously, even though nobody ever bought my music either. Well, yeah. you know, big picture, yeah. nobody. Um, but I took it very, very seriously for 15 years. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about the money. It's more just about like, is this my real thing yeah. or not? Am I, am I taking this seriously and aiming to be great at this or not? Yeah. If you were writing for money though, do you think that, or if you had to, I guess, this, let me rephrase. If you, were, if you had to sustain yourself on your writing, would you have taken it more seriously? Would it have changed? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a friend of mine is, um, she's a very professional author, and it's fascinating how detached she is from it. Hmm. She does that thing like she looks at Amazon search results and keywords and what people are looking for and runs test advertisements and stuff like that to see what are the most desired ebook subjects people are looking for. And then she will quickly go write an ebook on that subject in order to get maximum profits for her ebooks. And she's doing really well. I mean, she's making, you know, like very healthy six figures mm -hmm. per year, just writing ebooks. And they're not bad. They're not great. And she knows it. She knows they're not masterpieces, but they're pretty good. Mm -hmm. She she takes it very seriously and does a lot of research to try to make the best quick ebook she can on a subject that people want to know about. She re researches a lot and tries to write it well and then en enlists editors and ghostwriters to help her make it the best it can be. But that to me is somebody who's doing it for the money. Mm -hmm. um, that's an approach. Same as even in music, there are people who most songwriters we know write from their heart they write from their feelings right mm -hmm. but there are professional songwriters that this this is their business they analyze the top charts they see what what keys and what tempos are selling the best right now and they specifically craft a song to match today's zeitgeist to sell it to current pop stars or the, or the next pop stars they they do it in a very crafted calculated very professional this will make the most money kind of way so I'm glad I'm not doing that with writing because honestly, I probably wouldn't do it anymore. Like that yeah. would take all the fun out of it to me. In fact, I know some programmers that are surprised how much I love programming. And after they ask me a couple questions, it becomes clear that the reason I love programming is because I'm not doing it for the money. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it as a hobby. If I suddenly had to write software for some bank or whatever, I wouldn't love programming anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it, it reminds me of you have um, one of my favorite and probably my most quoted article of yours is The Balance. Mm, um, and you. it's how to do what you love and make good money. And yeah. I think I just quoted it the other day. Um, this is a, probably before you and I were emailing, but um, about this interview. And I just, there is a compulsion to take and find your purpose or your passion and then make it your job. And 
if you can do that, that's great. But the majority of people, unfortunately, you're really good at things that will pay the bills, but aren't exactly what you're like jumping out of bed excited about. Yeah. Um, and I love the way that you, you know, you, you put it in the article because it's just like, well, that's okay. Then that will be the way that you finance your art and you can keep the art pure and yeah. you can do it for fun. You can do it for free. You can do it for people's benefit. Um, you can give it away and you can still have a roof over your head. And those yeah. can be two separate things. Um, I guess really what I was like drilling down on and the question is if you could keep your writing pure, but you had to um, use it in order to like finance your life, do you think that you would have, that would have been the kick in the rear you needed to say, oh yeah, I'm not a programmer anymore. That is expired. Um, And I am going to take it serious. And maybe I guess I'm just curious as if you would have maybe discovered that faster or, um, or if it would have maybe poisoned the, the, the purity. Uh, well, I have never talked about this publicly, but um, there's an interesting, so sorry, my short answer is no. And here's why. Okay. okay. Is money kind of messes things. Uh, money can mess with your head. Mm-hmm. So you could define that what you are professionally, like what is my professional title is whatever pays you. Um, Because if you're not getting paid for this thing, well, are you really this thing or is that just your hobby? What you are, what your professional title is, whatever pays you. So at the very beginning of this, I said that I haven't made any money since 2008. And from my point of view, that's true. I haven't earned any money since 2008. But the money I made selling CD Baby is sitting in some uh, Fidelity account invested in passive mutual funds. And for about five minutes a year, I log into that account and I rebalance the asset allocation and that's it. So that my savings from selling CD Baby pay me out the only income I've earned since 2008. So in some senses, if, if I wanted to answer the question, if somebody says, so what do you do? Meaning in like a professional sense, in some weird way, I could say I'm an investor. <laughs> but if they said, oh, where, where do you invest? Where do you? I'd say, well, actually, I only work for five minutes a year. <laughs> uh, but technically, that is the only thing that has paid me since 2008 yeah. is that five minutes a year I spend investing. Um, so yeah, money messes with your self-definition of what you do. Um, to me, I'd rather get into the more uh, intrinsic motivations, like who are your heroes? Which direction are you facing? What do you aspire to? What fascinates you the most? What do you most want to do? And my favorite one is what do you hate not doing? So those of us mm-hmm. that are wondering, you know, I don't know, what do I love? I'm not sure what I love. Well, okay, well then stop everything and see what you hate not doing. And what do you, what do you hate not doing? Is it the writing? Writing. Yeah, yeah. that's my thing. I, I, I could do without, I would miss programming a lot. I actually, I, I do hate not programming as well. That's my strong secondary thing, but, but purely a hobby, but writing's the thing that I, I really hate not doing it. Um, that's my number one. Do you think, we as a human race have this disease of chasing the money and that just muddies everything. 
And that's how we find ourselves two decades down the path and wondering like, how the hell did we get here? And when did I stop loving what I did? And when did life stop feeling invigorating? When did I stop <laughs> feeling alive? Like, do you think that's, I mean, do you think that's what it is or a big part of it? Um, no, I think actually money is a fascinating neutral representation of value and so if you want to do good in the world and be valuable to the world, money's a pretty good indicator of what's, of how valuable you are being to the world. And that's the classic case of the starving artist, right? Is a starving artist is somebody whose uh, art is valuable to them, but not to others. And so they spend all their time doing something that means a lot to them, but means almost nothing to anybody else. And that's why they're the starving artist. Mm. Um, but in most senses, I think it's actually following the money can be a good compass uh, within reason. Of course, we can think of uh, ridiculous exceptions where you're, you know, those, those jobs, it's a middle-level management where you're pushing papers from left to right, but it pays you well. Mm. Um, that's an exception. But most things, the world rewards you um, according to how much value you're actually contributing. So following the money can be a good um, compass. Okay. All right. Now, this is where we typically switch gears to the Reaper round, but we didn't. Hey, I'm so, so sorry. Yeah, since I'm, everybody, <laughs> sorry, I'm in, I'm in Oxford, England. It would have taken a long time, if ever. <laughs> Or meet to cross borders during these times. So. I would have had to ship it to you illegally, quite frankly. <laughs> okay, yeah. So yeah, Peter and I decided. Sorry, I will. Uh, I'll have to skip the the actual eating part of the reaper round, but I would love to answer some of those answer. questions. Yeah, yeah, and you'll just have to just like you know feign um, like your you know your mouth's on fire and that you're right. you know it's yeah. really really hot. Okay, so we'll go through these. I know we're coming up on a time stop here, so we'll try to get through these in the next fifteen minutes, but. Um, first question, favorite book could be something you've read in the last year or a classic for you. Best one I've read in the last year is the courage to be disliked. Okay. Fascinating book. I think everybody should read it. Um, don't let the title throw you. It, the book is about many things. And I think the the courage to be disliked is one of 20 things that the book talks about, but it's a fascinating, radically different look at human um, interactions and responsibility. And it's written in a really different way, really unusual way. It's a Japanese book that was translated into English. And, and so it's like a conversation between a cranky student and a wise master. Huh. Um, fascinating book, The Courage to Be Disliked. Please okay. get it. I love it. I'll check that out. Any quotes you live your life by? What's great about this? Hmm. I learned that one as a teenager from Tony Robbins. <laughs> That whenever things go bad, you ask yourself, what's great about this? And your instinctive answer will always be nothing. Everything's bad about this. This is terrible. I said, okay, but keep asking. And eventually you'll find something that's good about this. So no matter what bad things happen to you in life, ask yourself, what's the upside? And eventually you'll find an answer. And I like the effort it takes to find it. You have to kind of, flex your brain to find the upside. 
Yeah. Switching your perspective. I mean, we're recording this now, like in the midst of this, all this, you know, Corona crisis and um, all of my conversations have been around like, what can we benefit from this? How are we going to look back and feel like, wow, this was such an inflection point either for you personally or for your business or for the economy Um, and kind of finding and, and flushing out some of the positivity. Like, I mean, I think that technologically there's going to be some major advancements here because we were forced to be able to communicate or, you know, sp- specific businesses were forced to actually innovate in places where they knew they needed to, um, but they hadn't and they've kind of put it on the back burner and now you had to. And so there, there are some positive, positive kind of outcomes and you've got to focus on those. Well, I think the, the biggest benefit to humanity from all of this is they will be buying more meat online. <laughs> Sorry, Peter. Couldn't <laughs> I appreciate that. And it is not a bad time to be selling meat online. Uh, it's hilarious. Thank you for that, Derek. Um, biggest business blunder and how did it set you up for su- success or, or did it? Uh, biggest business blunder. I accidentally signed away 90% of my company without realizing it. Hmm. Um, if you want to hear the full story, it's in my first book called Anything You Want okay. that Seth Godin published in 2011. Love it. Um, but yeah, I accidentally signed a document without reading it that signed away 90% of my company. And I didn't realize it for years to come until one day I was talking to my accountant and he said, you, you do know you, will, you don't own 90% of your company, right? I said, no. Um, but... Wow what, like, how did it set me up for success later? Um, it didn't. It was just a mistake. It was just a big, damn, stupid mistake. Mm. And nothing better ever came out of it. And um, I think about this sometimes with regret. That if you have something, if you, like, say you do a big mistake in life, and you really regret it and you're telling it to a friend and your friend cares about you. Your friend will often say, Oh, that's okay. Look at the upside. Look, you know, it's not so bad. I mean, maybe this." and lately I've had to stop and think, wait, is this something that I want to sugarcoat and put a silver lining on? Or is this something where I actually really need to feel the pain from this? No sugar, (laughs) no, no silver lining. I need to feel the pain from this in order to not make this mistake again. So yeah, I, I, there was a, uh, details don't matter, but yeah, about like three or four years ago, um, nothing to do with business, just kind of in personal life, I, had a, I did a big mistake. I did something that I really regret. And my friends tell me, oh, don't worry about it. I'm like, no, 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 I need to regret this. I need to feel that pain. So no, I think it's important to remember that um, not all mistakes and business blunders will set you up for success later. Some yeah. of them are just big damn mistakes that you should feel bad about. Big mistakes. Two things on that real quick, Derek, is one is I'm pretty sure you've never made that mistake again, which is signing 90% of your business over by accident. <laughs> That's pretty specific, yeah. <laughs> right? And, um, and then the other thing is about the not sugarcoating is I frequently think about how you have to lean on past pain. And it's good to feel it because you'll know when you're about to make that same mistake again, because right. you'll have that muscle memory. I, I know that, you know, I had a bad business partnership in the past and I can feel when something feels like that. I, I can feel like, oh, this feels like some of those decisions I made during that past experience 
and you can identify them quickly and you can actually see it in other people where they're about to go down the same path and you can say, Hey, um, I've, I've done this before. These are maybe some of the things you want to be wary of because that looks very similar to something I went through. Um, and you're able to like kind of use that wisdom for others. Um, and then you have that, you can only do that if you don't sugarcoat it or try to make it seem like what it isn't. Um, and you can use that to your benefit in the future. So I almost feel like that is also a way to set yourself up for success later is by learning from that and then maybe not repeating them. Right. Just, nice. a, just a thought. Um, okay. Where would we? We were at the best $100, under $100 purchase that's impacted your life most recently. Best under hundred dollar purchase. Well, besides my uh... <laughs> <laughs> nice mug. What is this? A red panda? I went to the zoo with my kid, and I just thought the red panda was so cute. I got a great big teacup. Um, no, I'm going to vote for something that is actually a negative amount. Something that was less than zero dollars. Okay, and that was selling everything I don't need in my house mm. on eBay. Okay. I like systematically went through the house of everything that I haven't used in a few weeks. I was like, can I do without this? I can, can't I? Took a picture of it, wrote a little paragraph, put it on eBay for a dollar. Somebody came and took it. And I did that for a bunch of things. It made me so happy. It made them so happy. Oh my God, they got this $400 thing for a dollar. They're happier. I'm happier. That was my best under hundred dollar and under zero dollar purchase. That's incredible. Why the dollar versus just give it away? You wanted to feel like there was an, a transaction kind of thing where like, how did that work? Uh, I, I think actually on eBay, uh, you actually have to set a price. Yeah. So just a dollar. I mean, I didn't ask for the dollar when they came, you know, <laughs> I just wanted, I just wanted to find somebody who actually wanted this thing. That's the idea. Instead of leaving it on a street corner uh-huh. and getting somebody who just happens to be driving a truck to, you know, throw it in the back. I wanted to find somebody that was specifically looking for this thing. Got it. Somebody who wants, that's who I want to have this thing is somebody who wants this thing. So I was just telling you, we recently, you know, sold our place and same exact psychology. We had a um, yard sale and I was just like, let's not have a yard sale. Let's just donate this crap. Like I, this is a waste of time. I don't want to spend my Saturday doing this, but I realized very quickly that it wasn't about that. Um, the family my wife, my kids, they wanted to see someone who was excited about what they were getting rid of. And it was 50 cents or whatever. It didn't even matter because they ended up donating most of the money to a charity, but um, that's what they wanted to do. Um, But they, it was nice for them to see like, okay, I really kind of didn't want to part with this, but I also don't have any use for it. And it's nice to see someone else excited about it and to know that they're going to put it to use. So it sounds like very similar psychology. Cool. Yeah. In the last five years, uh, one new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? You don't know what you want until you try it. Until you've actually tried something, anything you think you want is just a theory. And you have to actually go do it in order to know. Um. A couple of years ago, there were a few things that I thought I wanted to do, a way that I wanted to live, uh, where I wanted to live, how I wanted to live. And it wasn't until I went and tried it. And I went, oh, never mind. I don't want this. But, but man, I spent hours and hours and hours in theory thinking I wanted that or actually feeling like this is a fact. This is what I want. And then when I actually did it, no, 
not at all. So all these people who like, even here's an example. I mean, (laughs) this would have been a good example up until a month ago. Um, Somebody who's thinking of quitting their job. I don't think anybody's going to be quitting their job now. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, you know, people, if you think you want to quit your job, give it a test run first, go take a two week vacation or something like that to, to see, or take a sabbatical or something to see if you actually want to, or, or if you think you want to get into this new field, you think you suddenly want to get into uh, robotics or 3d printing or whatever it is you think you might want to get into that. You think you want to be a programmer. You have to go try it to know because it's the only way to know is to actually try it. Mm-hmm. And your advice would be to like, I, I call it the MVP, right? Minimum viable product. But like your your thought process is also to test it, right? In a way that's um, uh, low stress, low risk, right? Um, like I've got friends that decided they wanted to move to Hawaii and they sold everything and they sold their house and they moved there. And then like two months they realized, mm, I don't really want to live here. And yeah. all I could think of was, you know, you could have taken a vacation there, right? Like, <laughs> exactly, you, exactly. You know, you could have rented a house for three weeks and right. just found out that you didn't like it. That would have been a lot easier, I think. I used to live in New York City and a lot of people in New York would do that. They'd be the, like New York would stress them out. They'd freak out. They'd say, I want to move upstate. And they'd move upstate into the rural forest of upstate mm-hmm. New York four hours from anything. And after two months, they'd go, oh, um, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I mean, that's actually an example where you had to do it to know. So maybe the, the wisdom inside of this is, yeah, don't cut off your other options or something. Yeah. yeah. Try things before you decide that this is what you want. Yeah. Try before you buy. What's something a regular follower of your work wouldn't know about you? I am a citizen of India and a resident of Portugal. Okay. Wow. Just for, for, for fun? Basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have much more to say about that. Just, you know, there's something nobody knows. Uh, what should I have asked you but I didn't? Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I hate that question. <laughs> I don't know. I had something I wanted to say, I would say it. I don't need to wait for you to ask me to say something, I'd say it. <laughs> You're probably the only person that's true uh, True with. I love that. And I, I usually end with your favorite mission meets flavor, but I don't think you've tried our stuff yet because we can't get it to you. Sorry. Yeah. Someday. What's your guess? Can, so Spicy where in California or, or, are you? I'm in Southern California. Yeah, South Orange okay. County. Oh, nice. Um, oh, I miss LA. I lived in LA for years. And, Did you? Uh, yeah. In fact, I'm curious what you might think. If you go to sivers.org slash LA, okay. I wrote an article. It was actually a long email to somebody once on my advice about moving to LA. And when I was done, I thought, this is a good article. And I posted it and I emailed it to a bunch of people in LA and, and everybody went right on. Dude. Like, this is pretty accurate. So um, yeah, sivers.org slash LA. But anyway, um, yeah, I would uh, love to try. I would guess that I would not be a super spicy guy, but I'm usually the one that I like I like things that are that have an interesting flavor. Like I'll, like my tea tastes right now. My favorite tea right now is a Singapore tea that has inside of it black tea, green tea, uh, coconut, and toasted brown rice all huh. mixed together. It's so good because it's complex. It's got yeah. like four things going on in there that you can taste. To me, that's so much more interesting than you know a, a typical English breakfast tea. So I'd probably be the same thing with the meat flavors where you kind of 
you almost have to stop and think as you're chewing. I like yeah. that. Okay. We've got a new flavor coming out um, and it's uh, Moroccan spice and then it has golden yes. raisins in it. Oh, and perfect. Right. Oh. And so it's just like this, like, very, yeah, yeah, something like more of a meal and less of like just this boring snack kind of thing. Yes. So that sounds like it was probably up your alley. But yeah. Well, Derek, man, it's been a pleasure. Like super appreciate um, chatting with you again. And um, sounds like you said we're, this is your first, second interview with someone? Is that what you said? Oh, uh, yeah, it's something like that. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just kind of, I, I think I just, I got lost in my other work for years and I just didn't want to turn on the microphone or turn on the camera. Um, yeah. But it's, I've, I've rejoined the world again. Yeah. Um, it's fun. But yeah, anybody, if you're uh, listening to Peter's interview and you made it all the way to the end, go to Sivers.org and send me an email and say hello. Yeah, that's awesome, man. If somebody wants to keep track of um, what, you're, what you're working on, is that the best way or yeah. somewhere else? Yeah. Okay, just go to my site and I've got a little email list. It's just a private email list you can join if you want, but I don't really care either way. <laughs> <laughs> I love that about you, man. Well, Derek, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. It's fun. Take care. Right. See ya. See ya. Thanks so much for tuning in. It means so much to me and the entire Mission Meets team. Now, I know every show you watch asks you to do something, right? Ask you to subscribe, leave a review, share the show, all this stuff, right? But it's because it's the best way for us to grow our show. So what do you say? If you know someone that would really appreciate listening to this episode, hearing the actionable advice, share it with them, will you? You know, shoot them the link, iTunes, YouTube, however you're watching this thing, tag them in the comments, share the show with someone. Okay. It'll help them. It'll help us. It'll be great. Okay. We're putting this content out so that viewers and listeners like you have gotten some benefit out of it. Right. And so if there's something else that you want to hear about, either about from a person or a topic, shoot me an email, peter at missionmeets.co. That's peter at missionmeets.co. And, um, I'll read those emails and see if I can get that person on the show or an expert in that topic that you want to hear about so desperately, right? Last thing, you watch this, this guest try or not try to eat the Reaper if you want to try to eat the Reaper, right? We've got a challenge going on in social media right now, specifically on Instagram, but you can do it on Facebook too. Record yourself eating that bag, tag it with Mission Reaper. Tag us also, right? And uh, for a chance to win 100 bucks of free, delicious Mission Meats product uh, for the most hilarious or creative video. So if you want to do that, grab a bag. All right? Now get out there and live your mission. Thanks a bunch. Thanks a bunch.